The following podcast contains explicit language. Here's a story of citizens who found and stole power when it was being denied them. Welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's podcast about sex. I'm Maureen O'Connor, New York Magazine's sex columnist. And we are overjoyed today to be joined in the studio by journalist, author, and filmmaker David France. Hello, David. Hello. It's so good to be here. David's 2016 book, How to Survive a Plague, is the definitive work on AIDS activism. And his award-winning documentary of the same name depicts a lot of those early heroes. Recently, How to Survive a Plague has been surfacing again as people look for inspiration in today's activist movements. I've been noticing on Twitter, people are using the hashtag ActLikeActUp, often sending links to David's book, to his documentary, and to the lessons we learned from those movements. So I thought it'd be a good time to revisit How to Survive a Plague and, David, find out your thoughts on today's sexual politics and activist movements. Terrific. Can you just tell me about how you arrived in New York? I uh, was brought up in the Midwest, and as a young uh, gay man in the Midwest, it was not a happy place uh, in the 70s and early Mm -hmm. 80s. And what people did then to uh, survive is to move to, you know, one of the coastal cities. Beginning in the middle and early 70s, there was an enormous kind of reverse diaspora in the lesbian, gay, bi, and trans communities moving away from the places where we grew up, away from our biological families, to places we knew where we would find our community. Uh, I came to New York at a time when New York was just swelling with people arriving from all over uh, middle America. And I got to New York right after college. For me, that was in June of 1981, which happened to be just uh, about three weeks before the first reports of a mysterious ailment affecting the gay community. So uh, there there was an effort for me to find survival that brought me right into the face of this real challenge to survival. Mm-hmm. What was life like uh, upon arriving? Well, New York was a very exciting place then. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to experience a little bit of that kind of post-Stonewall uh, sexual liberation, um, kind of gay power movement uh, energy and excitement in this kind of community building, this movement building that was taking place before the plague really took hold. And uh, it was a time of um, fun and expression, self-expression. It was a very sexualized time, especially in the queer community, because effervescently expressing one's sexuality uh, had, you know, political implications. It was mm-hmm. it was a way to throw off the shame and the um, repression that had been inbred in us as we were growing up, and uh, to find our own comfort and to declare to the world that uh, that there really was nothing wrong with it. At a time, I should add, when yeah. there was something wrong with it legally. You know, mm-hmm. there was, it was still illegal in most states to express one's sexuality if one were gay. Um, the laws were on the books that made it a crime. In some cases, in some states, a felony to have gay sex at that time. It's interesting to think about the time when merely, and I mean, it still exists in some places too, many places around the world, where a public display of affection is actually in some ways an act of protest. Exactly. I, you know, I... I don't think anybody under you know a certain age could ever imagine what it was like to hold hands for the first time in public mm-hmm. as an adult with somebody you were attracted to and the feeling of uh, kind of revolutionary declaration that accompanied it, but also fear, the idea that you could be hurt 
to do this, and you were doing it anyway. So there's a kind of a an aggressive, uh, in-your-face nature, even to just holding hands. And do you remember the first time you did that? I do, I do, and I and I remember when I grabbed the guy's hand. His name was Peter. Uh huh. He was adorable. And Where were you? We were in Times Square, mm-hmm. and uh, and he said, "How did you know I would let you do that?" Like the idea that uh-huh. um, that that was so off the map that 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 uh, that you would have to find some rare and like-minded person to do that with mm-hmm. to walk a block or two with his hand in mine was just amazing. It was electric. And what did you say? How did you know? I didn't know, <laughs> but I did it anyway. <laughs> As is so often the case. <laughs> um, how did you become aware of AIDS well, or the mysterious illness, I suppose, before it was called that? I read that first report in the New York Times, and that was over the July 4th weekend in 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, hard to find. They buried it on page 21 in, in the main section of the paper, and they downplayed it, uh, but they but they downplayed it to what they were calling the general uh, population because um, it was really a report on this kind of small, uh, unknown community that clearly they, a writer of the article assumed was not reading the paper. But we all read the paper and we all reacted to it, some with more a sense of urgency than others. I know that that weekend in Fire Island, for example, People took the descriptions, the physical descriptions of the manifestations of the mm-hmm. the disease and looked at one another's bodies to see if they could find them and, and in fact, did find them. If they could find, like, purple spots. The purple spots, spots the, the, the wasting syndromes. The, but at the time, it was really the purple spots that people were looking for. And, and nobody in my, you know, small and, and impoverished world had those things, um, and nor did we have the money to get ourselves to Fire Island. And so there was a kind of a, <laughs> a class divide in the mm-hmm. first years between uh, who was being impacted by the epidemic, mostly wealthy men, mostly uh, uh, white, professional you know, you know, men of a certain class. And I certainly wasn't one of those. And uh, But ultimately, the disease moved beyond that group. It took a couple of years. You know, I didn't actually have a sense of the real peril of the epidemic until sometime in 1983. I can actually pinpoint it was May in 1983. And I went to a rally, the first kind of public um, demonstration of grief and fear around the disease in Central Park. And there were hundreds of people there, many of them looking very sick, you know, young people in wheelchairs and canes and walkers uh, in, in obvious pain, in, uh, very obviously close to death. And it was the first time that I looked at the epidemic, the, the, uh, the plague in its face and knew that something really terrible was going to grow and explode, not just through New York's gay communities, but through the world. What does that do to your sort of personal life or sense of sexual freedom when when you see that and you don't totally know, you don't have all the information about exactly how it spreads or exactly how to find it? Well, that mystery part, that that idea that that nobody knew was really confounding. Mm-hmm. What the authorities were saying at the time is that it was probably caused by, you know, homosex itself, which made no sense. As uh, opposed it, to a contagion, but just the act of doing this. Right. So the, yeah. the act of two men hooking up was somehow creating this, which doesn't take into account the fact that uh, thousands of yeah. years uh, of experience and practice have gone into the uh, development of, mm-hmm. of kind of the, the repertoire of gay sex. And that nobody was dying, no gay people were dying of this in the past. So, mm-hmm. and so we all dismissed that. We knew yeah. something creepy was going on. 
We knew that it was unlikely that there was a virus that was attacking known homosexuals. Like, how could a virus figure out one's sexual orientation? That made very little sense. But we knew that we were getting sick. So it was a time of just kind of unbridled fear. The hypothesis that it was being caused by some contagion Mm-hmm. was was really um, generated by uh, sick people themselves. And in 1983, a, a small group of people got together, put their heads together, and tried to come up with a kind of an ethos for the community's sexual expression that might take into account the fact that we're still operating on this um, kind of libidinous sexual exploration that took off after Stonewall and, and was mm-hmm. helping to fuel the development of a gay community, but also found a kind of a guess at uh, at an ethical behavior that might make it safer for people. So that was the invention of safe sex. Mm-hmm. Safe sex was actually invented, a hard thing to actually <laughs> try to explain to people that it was a theory. I mean, they hadn't yet proven that there was a virus. So these you know, three folks got together and said, well, let, let's see what we can come up with as a suggestion. And they invented the idea of condoms for gay men. I remember quoting somebody as saying that the idea that a gay man would use a condom was about as alien as the idea that a gay man would use like a Midol or one of those kind of you mm-hmm. know, PMS pills. Because the only thing that people thought of that for is, you know, pregnancy control. And these guys said, well, maybe it'll catch a virus and maybe this virus, if it's a virus or this contagion, this new agent might behave like hepatitis and condoms do uh, prevent hepatitis. And and they published a book. It was hard. There's this was pre-social media. It was yeah. You know, how do you get this information out about a new ethics of sexual behavior? They published a little pamphlet in kind of the kind of the radical practices of the '60s, um, and then they just distributed it through the community. It was called "How to Have Sex in an Epidemic," was the name of the uh, the pamphlet. Who wrote and it? It was written by Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz with the assistance of their doctor, whose name was Joseph Sonnabend. And he mm-hmm. gave the medical advice that, that would allow them to figure this out. Now, they were two perfect people to try to promulgate this. One was just a slut. Michael Callan <laughs> described himself as a slut. He spent most of his time in the bathhouses. Mm-hmm. It's where he excelled in, his, <laughs> you know, in developing a fan base. And the other was a sex worker, Richard Berkowitz. The two of them didn't want to bring shame to the practice of sexuality. They wanted to bring safety and ultimately, they wanted to bring what they called love. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea that you might, one might be bringing harm to another, created a, a, a kind of responsibility, an ethical responsibility. And they said, if you, if you love your community, uh, you wouldn't do that. And every relationship can be based on love, even if it lasts only 15 minutes. Uh, and that was their argument. It was really... It was really encouraging and embracing and, uh, and in fact, uh, took off. I mean, mm-hmm. the safe sex took off. And, yes. and we know how well it took off because we can chart the decrease in the number of diagnoses of gonorrhea and syphilis in the following years, down in some cases 60% and 80% in cities with large gay populations around the country. They created a kind of a safety campaign, a prevention campaign, in the absence of anybody in any of the public health agencies doing anything like that. Remarkable. It was really remarkable that you could accomplish that just by, you know, making an idea available. Were you working as a journalist during these years? I was, yes. I, I started in journalism at the beginning of the epidemic. Anybody in the community who um, 
uh, was impacted by it or or felt threatened by it, felt a, a certain responsibility to take on a job. Mm-hmm. In most cases, that meant people were volunteering to help the sick, you know, walking their dogs or buying their groceries or accompanying sick people to doctors. And I felt the call to journalism. It's not mm-hmm. something I had practiced before, but I, I, I wanted to find answers. And I, I kind of felt that I had a kind of an inborn a nosiness and that I could, mm-hmm. I, could, I could kind of pry open doors and try to see what I could find out about what was going on in those other rooms. I wanted to bring answers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, journalism is the place that I went. And that's how I met these guys. I was, I was working in journalism bef- at, just at the time that they were trying to develop this, this ethos. When you went to put together How to Survive a Plague in you know, more recent years, was that a sort of return to the past? Or it sounds like, was that just a sort of continuation of what you've been working on all along? Well, I've, co- I've continued writing about AIDS, and AIDS has been my main beat for, for all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a, a, a lot less uh, popular a beat. It's been harder and harder to get, you know, major publications interested in, in going back and telling, you know, today's AIDS stories. Um, but it occurred to me a couple of years ago that nobody had really gone back to look at the lessons that were learned or could be learned and distilled from that the period of plague, the period before yes. 1996, that 15-year period, there was this uh, uh, unstaunchable death. There wasn't a pill that offered any promise. And, uh, and I knew that, um, that activism, like the activism of Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz, uh, was responsible in really key and central ways in bringing about the end of the plague. Um, and I wanted to tell that story. Nobody knew it, really, yes. except those of us who witnessed it. And uh, so that's why, that's why I thought to go back and revisit those years and continue my kind of AIDS reporting project. You have some amazing archival footage from those early meetings and protests and such in the documentary How to Survive a Plague. Everyone should watch it if they want to see. Uh, um, Netflix, Amazon, it's all there. <laughs> it's everywhere. Were those videos, videos that just people who were participating in the meeting were taking for private purposes, were they people who had the goal of disseminating them publicly later? Well, for the most part, the footage that I used in the film, in the documentary, is uh, is shot by the activists themselves. Mm-hmm. And the footage was being shot for several motivations, uh, the leading one being this idea that nobody else was paying attention. And so we would pay attention and we would create these documents, these these irrefutable documents of what happened in those years or that week. And show mm-hmm. it the next week, you know, just say, just say, look, you were there. And he was there, although he died on Wednesday. He was there doing that on Monday. And the power of that affirmation, you know, can't be dismissed. There's a scene when Bob Rafsky, one of the um, activists, is yelling. At, he's trying to get Bill Clinton to answer a question for him when Bill is running for president. And Bill responds, and he goes on this really ugly rant initially And then he sort of like winds back as he can feel himself being terrible. And what's amazing to me is after that, you sort of jump to Bob at an activist meeting and they're all cheering and they say that's actually success. That even though that person was so horrible to you, AIDS is now part of the public conversation. And that was such an incredible moment to think the need to have such tough skin or to see the successes where it doesn't always feel like a success but it's something. It's strategy, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, by that time, the movement had un- understood what it needed for 
these kind of minor gains. And what mm-hmm. Bob said to the meeting, if I remember exactly, he said, it's our job first to get these clowns to say something about AIDS mm-hmm. and then to hold them to it. Yes. And then he says, but just remember, they are not the people who are going to save our lives. Uh, and he gives a list of the people mm-hmm. who might save our lives. But but they these people at the highest level needed to at least open up their vocabulary to professions of compassion in order for other things to happen. And, and that was a, it was a, a, an apparently minor victory for Bob Rafsky and for the movement then, but it turned out to be a major turning point. Here's that moment with Bill Clinton and Bob Rafsky from How to Survive a Plague. When voter Bob Rafsky met Bill Clinton, it was anything but pleasant. We're dying in this state. What are you going to do about it? Can you become a part of my obsession as president? No, you're lying to me. That's why I'm running for president. Now, will you just calm down? I feel your pain. I feel your pain. But if you want to attack me personally, you're no better than Jerry Brown and all the rest of these people and say whatever sounds good in the moment. If you want something to be done, you ask me a question, you listen. If you don't agree with me, go support somebody else for president. But quit talking to me like that. This is not a matter of personal attack. It's a matter of human loss. I came here tonight because I'm dying from AIDS. And it doesn't matter to me who the next president is if they don't change 11 years of government neglect of this epidemic. Among the reasons that the scenes when people are protesting in public spaces, part of that so powerful is that feeling of making the damaged bodies visible mm-hmm. or this is the body of the person who you work with every day. But did you know he's also gay and and HIV positive mm-hmm. or that sort of thing? And I was trying to think if there are any modern analogs to that. One thought I had was the movements for, say, undocumented immigrants to sort of come out of the closet as undocumented or as a dreamer with that same level of feeling. I'm already here. Do you know I'm in crisis? I could lose everything just by showing my face. That, that's a very strong parallel. What ACT UP had to do, what AIDS activism had to do from the first day is, um, you know, I, I said that there was this big influx in the cities in, in the 70s and, and early 80s. Um, but people were moving into these kind of isolated ghetto neighborhoods where it was possible to exist in a certain sort of a freedom bubble that didn't exist anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be kind of totally out in your neighborhood and yet still be closeted at work for reason of necessity. Right. And what that meant was that despite the fact that we had already now been 12 years beyond um, this, the, the Stonewall riots of 1969, mm-hmm. there was no acknowledged sense of the humanity of gay people. You know, gay people were still these kind of alien, freakish beings. Um, it was only eight years past the uh, declassification of homosexuality in by the American Psychiatric Association as being a mental illness. And none of these ideas had really promulgated in the, the larger population in the hearts and minds of Americans. That, that was the first thing that had to be done. So that's what activists were doing in those early demonstrations, saying, mm-hmm. look, look at me. I look like the kid you went to school with. I look like the, the guy next door or the woman next door. I'm indistinguishable as a human being from you, and yet I'm being denied uh, access to medication. I'm being denied research funding. I'm being denied even the the slightest shiver of compassion for this death march that's taking over the community. Tens of thousands of people, Americans, had been sick with AIDS before the president said anything about it. Mm -hmm. It was not worthy of concern 
And the first thing that activism had to do was create that worthiness. That's what the dreamers were doing. Right. In the early days, they were saying, look at us, hear our stories, and you will recognize us as mm-hmm. people. And, and once you do that, then you might listen to our arguments about what we need as people. How does the movement manage to stay together when you have sort of two super ambivalent needs like that to simultaneously want to dismantle the system and work through it? Like, how can you maintain cohesion through that? That's ultimately where um, that grassroots AIDS activism blew up, was Mm -hmm. right along that fault line. Um, People who, uh, on one hand, uh, advocated for a total revolution in the way science and medicine and and pharmaceutical uh, research are conducted, the breaking down of the profit motive, a nationalizing of drugs, um, just destroying the patent system, um, eliminating um, uh, health insurance in favor of one payer, uh, insurance plans. And um, all of that, this utopian idea is very um, beautiful and mm-hmm. uh, seductive and arguably necessary. But if, if to put that a, a, ahead of the need to get a pill that's going to stop people from dying, a might, and this was the argument at the time, save way fewer lives than if you just accept the idea that these scientists are behaving the way scientists have always behaved. Their, their CEOs are behaving the way CEOs have always behaved and get them to work on your agenda and, mm-hmm. um, and, and work for you. That's where it broke. There, there was a, a dramatic scene that I, that I use both in the film and the book where uh, one of the members of ACT UP stood up and said and proposed a moratorium on meetings between uh, activists and researchers for a period of six months. And the people who were engaged in those meetings said, that's where we're learning information. That's where we're pushing them forward. That's where we're, we're, we are telling researchers that this is the pill we want you to research and this is how you, we want it to be brought out to market. We can't abandon the gains that we've made there. And the woman who made the proposal responded by saying, it's just six months. We're proposing a, proposing a six-month moratorium for us to rethink all of this. It's not like it's the rest of our lives. Oh, my God. And at the time, a six-month prognosis was a long prognosis for the people in that room with HIV. Mm -hmm. It was the rest of their lives. Yeah. And to put a larger principle like that, even for very good reasons, defensible reasons and principled reasons and utopian reasons, was, you know, unpractical, to use the most polite word at that moment. It's a bit of a luxury sometimes exactly. to be so, the person who has six months. So the folks who are on the inside doing the work split from the people who are doing more of the social and um, kind of, one might say, more radical work. And they continued their work on, on the insides of the deepest halls of science and ultimately were partners in, the, in bringing about the end of the plague years, leaving behind this wing of protest that without the the tentacles inside the institutions that they were trying to change lost their direction and they lost their urgency and they lost their potency and eventually fell apart. What, looking back at the AIDS activism days, seems different now? Like when you went back through the archival footage or started thinking about it again with your, you know, recent decade lenses, what seemed different? One thing I should point out is that um, in 1981, when the first reports of disease came, there was something like 60%, 65%, maybe 70% of Americans found gay people 
entirely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And the, the rest were uncertain. Uh, gay people had no traction on civic life. None at all. I mean, there were no gay people on television. There were no out gay politicians. There had been one and he was assassinated, which tells us that, right. that there's not going to be another for a period of time. In Harvey Milk. In Harvey Milk. Um, there were no uh, openly gay reporters at uh, newspapers or television stations. There were, there were no gay people in the public eye. None, none, none. And there was no suggestion that that was ever going to happen. Now, today, we know that over half of America is opposed to what this guy is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from the polls that 70% of America disapproves of what he's doing. We already have the hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. What we don't have is the strategy, the end game. Like, how are we going to respond to this? Yeah. How does one respond to it? I have to admit that I went to bed night after night convinced that the Electoral College was going to just, you know, kick out the vote. <laughs> and that's delusional, but it was... It, oh, I you had just a kind cling of a to wishful to thinking sometimes. Wishful thinking. But sooner or later, that wishful thinking has to give way to this kind of concrete agenda mm-hmm. of work. And, um, and once, you know, the movement develops to a point where um, that those ideas are being, are congealing and um, developing and... Um, and been being promulgated and shared, then I think we have a, a game plan. Why do you think this hearts and minds change happened so quickly when we're thinking about other issues like, say, undocumented immigrants, trans people, you know, any number of of other sort of types of people that are maybe in their early days? Well, that that move, the movement to gay marriage is very clearly tied to the AIDS epidemic. The AIDS epidemic forced the hand of the community and the movement to mm-hmm. demand personhood. And it, there was an urgency to it. There was a killer out there that claimed hundreds of thousands of American lives. Hundreds of thousands of American lives. And we as a people had to do something to respond to it. The cultural advancement and integration of the queer community in American society happened over such a short period of time literally over kind of mm-hmm. a 20, 25-year period going from outlaws to in-laws, as I, as I yeah. like to say, <laughs> was is unparalleled, really, mm-hmm. in American history. We just haven't seen it. The hundreds of years it's taken us to make any sort of progress on, on uh, acknowledging racism and addressing right. uh, racial in, inequalities in the country. The Black Lives Matter movement is also about a killer out there, and yet... Another, That's an, been a really tough battle. Another similar movement, though, right? So mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter says this is not just about these kind of institutional problems within police force and, and in policing in American cities. It's about the way America thinks about people of color, mm-hmm. about black lives. And you you have to change that entire broad culture in order to get to that, that pinpointed um, goal. And um, those parallels are really powerful. Um, one thought for a period of time that that the advancements were permanent, and and we mm-hmm. see now in the people who are uh, gaining appointments in this administration that as uh, at least on the question of queer stuff that they that they really do see a time when, as they say, American was was great again, um, mm-hmm. a, you know, a time when a, a kind of a nineteen fifties America where a kind of a single monolithic image of the acceptable American existed. And, um, and that entails, and it's being spoken about very openly, um, 
things like conversion therapy, things like uh, a rollback of political advancements for the transgender community. This executive order, which which Trump may or may not promulgate about uh, so-called religious freedoms that would allow people to discriminate um, legally against queer people. Uh, One thought that that was gone, but there Mm. it is again. So I think on on so many social fronts, there's going to be battles all over the place. I think we have to look back at the Reagan years in America to see to see what that looked like. I mean, Reagan came with a real domestic counter-revolutionary agenda, also worked out on a, on the international scale. Mm-hmm. But the battles on, on cultural battles in America were supreme, and I think we're going to see those all over again in this administration. What was your personal life like during those years? Well, you know, I I struggled along that same kind of of arc. One of the things that I think it was one of the motivators for me to go into journalism is that there was a kind of a detachment to it. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was, I was telling these stories that weren't my stories. I was uh, kind of a, a, you know, a, a lone operator, you know, and I focused a lot on the science. So I was right. m- meeting with doctors and scientists and hospital administrators. And, you know, I was, I was telling what were really essential stories and stories that people were really hungry for, but it kept me away from a, a real kind of personal connection to it. And, I remember, and I write about this in, in How to Survive a Plague, but that the first several of my friends who got sick um, scared the shit out of me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the idea that this got them is something that I had trouble finding my way through. And um, I admit with some shame that the the first friend who got sick, I I uh, I visited him in the hospital and, during his first hospitalization, and then... Never saw him again. I never reached out to him again. I, I didn't know how to have the plague that close in my world mm-hmm. and in my life. And it was shameful behavior. I don't think I was the only person who, who fled in that emotional way. I mean, mm-hmm. I was still in the struggle. I was still yes. doing the work that I had laid out for myself. But the uh, Figuring out the level of distance you can have and learning how to shorten that distance to something terrorizing, I think is something everyone goes through in, in that type of situation, or at least I would imagine. If you can. Yeah. I mean, you know, unless AIDS struck you and I was not infected yes. in those early years. And True. in fact, I was never infected. I'm still HIV negative. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if it struck me, if it struck my lover, um, then, th- then you're drafted. And w- one would say you're drafted when your friends get sick too. And I, th- it took me a number of years before I could... Um, respond to that, you know, draft notice um, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, care for my friends um, in really effective and, and present ways. Um, and then I had a lover who got sick um, mm-hmm. and it and it did strike home. And at that point, it wasn't something I could run from. And, no. And so I, you know, I did what I could for him. And I thought I still would work uh, as a journalist, um, but with the idea that the 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 journalism was suddenly very, very, very personal for me mm-hmm. that I was looking for solutions to his opportunistic infections. I was looking for uh, ways to reform the scientific method that might bring around an answer in time for him. And unfortunately, it didn't. Uh, he died in 1992, which is two and a half years before the advent of the new drug class that really made a difference. But um, so... So yeah, if if you were there, you know, this is what I realized afterwards, and now talking to people over these last many years doing this kind of AIDS look back project, that if you knew one person with AIDS, you knew 
many people with AIDS. Mm -hmm. If you knew one person that died, you knew many people who died. But it was possible, even even among gay men of my generation, to know nobody. And, and there's a large number of people who remained personally immune or, or divorced from that kind of moment-by-moment moment, uh, clinical struggle for survival, um, which doesn't mean that they aren't survivors themselves, because mm -hmm. they existed in that world of tremendous peril. It impacted the way they expressed their love for um, for other people, the way they expressed their sexuality. And they've come out the other end. Those who survived and were negative came out the other end to today with the same kind of you know PTSD mm -hmm. or whatever you would call it. There's a group now calling it AIDS Survivor Syndrome. And that's shorthanded as ass by the, <laughs> the people with their black humor in the AIDS movement. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have ass, um, uh, it's it's likely to be um, just as significant whether mm -hmm. or not you were HIV positive then or had somebody in your you know close inner circle who was. What's it like now having having ass um, <laughs> as you do, I assume, <laughs> and seeing sort of I don't know the new generation of not metaphorical ass of the new generations of yeah. looking for ass. Yeah. yeah, how I mean, how carrying that trauma and then watching sexual culture evolve in the sort of radical ways it has since, which simultaneously owes a lot of debt to your generation, but is also freed of so many of the burdens in in a way. That was the goal of the movement, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody wants to go back to that time. No. And all of the advances in public health that were uh, conceived by and driven by AIDS activists, mostly people with AIDS themselves, that that was all aimed at the possibility that we could get back to a time where sex was fun mm -hmm. and not fraught. And um, I know that there are there are many people in the leadership of the old movement who who are frustrated that people aren't using condoms and that people are mm -hmm. not um, thinking about um, uh, a sex in that same kind of uh, ethical kind of enforced ethical way that was required mm -hmm. in the middle of the of the plague years. But I'm not one of them. I, I think that um, that divorcing sex from disease was the goal, and, mm -hmm. and it, it was largely successful. What are you working on now? Um, I'm just finishing up a documentary. Um, it's called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. It's about the uh, original uh, transgender movement um, stemming from the late 60s um, in New York, the mm -hmm. formation of the first trans rights organization. And the life and times of the people who are behind it, um, who were uh, amazing figures, historical figures, who have not uh, been yet well historicized. And so it's, a, it's an attempt to put them on the map, to canonize them and their work alongside mm -hmm. uh, other important kind of American and human social justice movements. Amazing. Looking forward to that then. Thank you. When, when can we look forward to seeing that? My fingers are crossed that we, we, we will be able to show it to you and to many in April. Mm -hmm. This has been so inspiring and just wonderful. Oh, Thank great. you. Thank great. you, David. Well, I'm glad to be able to talk about this at this time because we, we need positive things to hold on to and, you know, and encouragement. We need courage. And I think the past can give us courage for the future. Thank you so much to our guest, David France. Thank you so much. It was great to great. talk to you. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. I hope so. Our guest this week has been David France, author of How to Survive a Plague and director of the award-winning documentary of the same name. You can catch How to Survive a Plague on Netflix, Amazon, all kinds of live streaming. 
If you're in New York, you can catch a screening of How to Survive a Plague, followed by a Q&A with David Franz, Laura Poitras, and Jem Cohen at 7.30 on Monday, February 20th, as part of the IFC Center's Alternative President's Day programming. Sex Lives is produced by Afim Shapiro and Alana Milner. Thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thank you for listening. Check out How to Survive a Plague, and we'll talk to you next week.